Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. This isn't David Law after consuming some helium. This is Catherine Whitaker. We're having a bit of a role reversal this week, but I am, of course, joined by David Law in the Putney Exchange, David. It's wonderful to be back, isn't it? Uh, Where else could we possibly be? Um, I can't believe you've name-checked them after saying you wouldn't last week. So um, random shopping centre it is. I'm not name-checking the coffee shop we're in, that's for sure. They're not, they're not getting anything out of us for free. Uh, now, we have quite the jam-packed show coming up. I'm sure you can probably guess what our headline discussion topic is going to be, and we will come on to that very, very soon, rest assured. But first of all, we do have a fairly uh, major big interview this week with the newly re-elected CEO of men's tennis of the ATP, Chris Camot. David has hot-footed it from the Queen's Club, where he's been chatting to Chris. How was he, David? It was very well. I mean, it's, as you say, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot to talk about this week generally, and there's been a lot for him to deal with over the last couple of months. But yeah, I've just spent half an hour with Chris in his office at the Queen's Club. We've touched on all the significant topics of the day, the match-fixing allegations that surfaced during the Australian Open, obviously the the anti-doping issues of the last seven days. Uh, we've also been talking about the future of the game as he sees it, some big changes potentially to the actual fundamental elements of the game that, that are going to be trialled over the next uh, couple of years. So it was an interesting chat. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, he's a no-nonsense guy, Chris, isn't he? Very Gives a very punch interview. It's very interesting. Do listen at the end of the show for that. But of course, first of all, we have to talk... Maria Sharapova and the events that have unfolded over the last week. We, of course, recorded that supplementary segment at the beginning of the last podcast to cover off her announcement on uh, Monday evening UK time of last week. But that was recorded in the very immediate aftermath. A lot of the information that we were getting was coming from Twitter and it was changing all the time. We've had a whole week now. And boy, is my internet search history looked quite bizarre over the last week. The amount of research I've done 
about meldonium and various different things. So I think before we get into discussion of the various, very complicated, very muddy issues at the heart of, of uh, this news story, I think I'll just give you a brief summary of what we've learned over the last week about this situation. I'll try to stick to the facts here, the facts of what we learned over the past week. Meldonium, the drug that Maria Sharapova has tested positive for, is used to treat ischemia, which is a lack of blood flow to parts of the body, particularly in cases, cases of angina or heart failure. It's manufactured in Latvia and only distributed in Baltic countries and Russia. It's not approved by the FDA in the States nor in the rest of Europe. WADA found evidence of its use by athletes with the intention of heart of enhancing performance by virtue of carrying more oxygen to muscle muscle tissue. The decision to add meldonium to the banned list was approved on the 16th of September 2015 and then came into effect on the 1st of January 2016. WADA had spent the previous year monitoring the drug, as they always do, before adding it to the banned list. All players were sent five communications in December warning that the substance would be banned from January 1st. Sharapova's management responded to that in a statement saying, whether it was one notice or more than one, Maria has already already acknowledged she should have known and Sharapova also then added in a message to fans on her Facebook page that these communications were buried in newsletters, websites or handouts. Several athletes have been suspended since the turn of 2016 after testing positive for the same drug. Among several others was uh, a baby Aragawi, the 2013 women's 1500 metres world champion. Um, she's been suspended provisionally after meldonium was found in a sample she provided as well. But there are countless other athletes. You can look all of them up uh, online. Sharapova says she has been taking the drug for 10 years after she was regular falling ill. She had a magnesium deficiency and a family history of diabetes and she says she will provide medical and documentary evidence at her hearing that will prove this. The preliminary hearing has to take place before March the 23rd and then there'll be a subsequent hearing within 60 days after that. Nike has suspended its $70 million deal with Sharapova Tag Heuer. The watch manufacturer announced that it would not be renewing is its contract with her and Porsche said it would not be doing any imminent activities with Sharapova Head. Meanwhile, her racket sponsor have said they are proud to stand behind her and have said they intend to extend her contract. So a very different stance from Head. Now that's that's all, that's the bombardment of facts for the time being. Can you run that by me again? <laughs> Yeah, that's just just that's just a mere sample of my internet search history from the past week, and many. Th- I mean, there has been so much volume of stuff written in the various papers. I think, I think the way the British papers have covered it, the, a lot of a lot of that stuff comes courtesy of the Guardian, the Times. Really quality journalism. We many, many differing opinions, but really high quality uh, journalism over the past week covering this big story. Um, just a little summary. What's been very interesting is. How the other, how her fellow fellow players have responded to this development, and there's been such a wide range of opinion among the fellow, her fellow players, and I think that reflects how muddy this moral maze is, and how many layers of 
issues there are within this one news story. story. Just a quick summary. Belinda Bencic, who of course uh, lost to Maria Sharapova in Australia where she tested positive, said she didn't want to comment on the situation and she doesn't think it made any difference on that day. Uh, Plenty of other players sort of sitting on the fence or not being prepared to comment, I suppose, understandably. Stan Vavrinka, he said it's tough to say anything if it's not on the list, which, of course, it wasn't up until January 2016. Novak Djokovic has said, as a friend, he's called Sharapova courageous and brave for publicly taking responsibility for testing positive. But as a player concerned about the sport, he said, quote, if she was caught to be positive on the doping for a certain substance, then there should be a certain kind of consequences for that. And... A development in the past 24 hours, David, has been John McEnroe having <laughs> having his say. Uh, very interestingly, he has said, if a drug is legal, then it's a no-brainer. I mean, are you kidding? You can practically hear John saying these words, can't you? I mean, are you kidding? Uh, he said, people have been always looking since the beginning of time for an edge. And if you're constantly looking for these things in any way, shape or form, then it's a no-brainer. He said it would be hard to believe, though, that no one in her camp, the 25 or 30 people that worked for her, or Maria herself, had no idea that this happened. Uh, On the other side of the coin, we've got some players that have been slightly more critical of Sharapova, Rafael Nadal, who's had his own barrage of doping-related questions to deal with this week he's announced today or not announced he's said today that he intends to sue the former French sport and health minister who's cast aspersions on his time out of the sport in 2012 with completely no foundation it seems and he's been very bullish about how he and his team intend to deal with those aspersions but on the subject of Maria Sharapova he said I want to believe that for sure it was a mistake for Maria she didn't want to do it but it is if it is a result of negligence. So the rules are like this. It's fair. She must pay for it. Uh, Jeannie Bouchard said, I was very shocked and disappointed. Sharapova was an idol of mine growing up. To think of your childhood idol and wonder if it was a lie, it really affected me a lot. Serena Williams, of course, many of you will have heard her statement in the immediate aftermath saying most people were happy that she was she being Sharapova was upfront and honest and that showed a lot of courage lots of people echoing those thoughts Um, but then uh, supplementarily she said in the past couple of days I don't take any supplements I'm terrified by it and I think it would be a really bad situation if it was me I think it's disappointing for all the players who work very hard however I don't think it reflects on everyone we have all been playing since we were four or five I'm sure lots of you heard how um, aggrieved Jennifer Capriati has been she launched a, a big Twitter response to it all and I just want to touch on Andy Murray and his response to it he is no nonsense about doping isn't it no isn't he no fence sitting for him he said I think taking a prescription drug that you don't necessarily need just because it's legal that is wrong clearly that's wrong if you're taking a prescription drug and you're not using it for what the drug was meant for then you don't need it you're just using it for the performance enhancing benefits and I don't think that's right and in regard to head who's his racket sponsor as well in regard to their decision he said i personally wouldn't have responded like that which is pretty hard line to take isn't it considering how many players have been slightly dodging the subject now i'm just going to take a little breather from talking for a moment david and i'm going to throw you the very (laughs) broad open question of what are your thoughts on all of this 
Well, I'm exhausted um, just listening to all that. But, um, I, you know, there's, there is, it's such a, an emotive subject, isn't it, on a number of levels, because as you hear, people have such differing viewpoints for a start. Uh, I think, first of all, the facts as we know them are that she's tested positive. She's saying that this is a substance she has been given and prescribed by doctors for health conditions and for 10 years she took it and then she was negligent she's agreed to that she's admitted to that she said that's the reason i've ended up testing positive that's all there is to it so from her perspective you can take away all those suggestions that she was trying to enhance her performance by taking this substance that's her stance i don't have any evidence to to contradict that I do know, and I've read about the number of many other cases in sports that we've heard of in recent days, since January the 1st, of athletes testing positive for meldonium, which, yeah, again, raises a number of question marks as to are they all testing positive because of having been prescribed this this drug uh, for, for health reasons, and, and have they all therefore been negligent in not stopping in time there's also the question mark over uh, whether players are taking notice of the information they're given sharp over in that facebook statement mentioning how um five times she was supposedly told about this stuff and she's showing us all the documents and things like that and listing the, the details of why it's so hard to keep on top of this whilst not trying to suggest that she should have done any, that she should have not have done it differently she's saying that I, I got it wrong I didn't notice that one email but the bottom line is that's what we know there is now going to be a process that takes place there is you know you talked about the morality of this last week in the immediate aftermath and we heard the, the words of John McEnroe which was was is something he's echoing to some degree what you said last week that you know why wouldn't you if you if there are rules in place why wouldn't you push to the very limit of it now that then comes down to where you stand on things morally doesn't it well this is this is i think where we should head with the debate now because as you say the facts of the Maria Sharapova case are yet to be established we eagerly await that hearing she says she's going to produce medical documentary evidence that proves that she wasn't taking meldonium for performance enhancing purposes i and if she does if she does i think we've just you know and if that is accepted you just have to take that on its merits what else what else can you do i mean i i I accept other people may have a different opinion my own one is that i'm going to accept the ruling in that regard okay but as i say i'm going to steer the debate in a different direction because we can't say much about the specifics of the sharapova case because so much is yet to be said but it does open up this debate about the facts are meldonium is proved to have performance enhancing properties that doesn't mean there isn't a a legitimate reason for taking it in some cases as well but that's why it's been placed on the ban list because it does have performance enhancing properties and it's taken a long time to get it onto the ban list now is it just that i mean the winner all costs attitude that determined gritty commitment to victory at any cost is something that we admire in an athlete isn't it is that just simply not compatible necessarily with acting within the spirit of the law because there's a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law isn't it are those two things just perhaps not necessarily compatible 
it, it's a really difficult one because for me, I I would love it if they would ban everything. That there would be that it could be utterly black and white in that regard. That if you know. Um, that you, you basically exist on water and food, and let's see who is the best human being at a particular sport. That is my ideal. Now, I'm probably naive. That's probably not possible. It's I don't probably, think you are naive, David. I don't think you are naive. No, I, but I think it's probably just not possible to, to, to be able to, to run a, a doping program like that and be as zero tolerance to the point of that. Otherwise... Why wouldn't we be doing it? Um, it must be that difficult. And, you know, I was, I was actually talking um, via uh, messages with uh, Richard Ings, who's, who's obviously hugely experienced in this field from his time at the ATP. And I was, I was curious, because I, I, I downloaded the app, the WADA app, to find meldonium on it. I also looked up mildronate, which is what Maria Sharapova had initially said. This is what I've been taking, and I now know it's known as meldonium as well. Mildronate, you can't see it on the app. It's not there. Meldonium obviously is, and that's part of the argument she was making. I just remember back um, probably 15, 20 years ago when we were all talking about creatine, this Supplement which so many of the athletes we, were using, and we, there were a lot of question marks over it. And I was asking Richard, you know, is is that on the, the list? Because I can't find it on the app, and it and it wasn't then, and it isn't now. And 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 I was curious as to why that is. And and he said, you know, that there are actually three criteria for uh, a substance getting on the banned list, and and it has to satisfy two out of the three in order to be on there. And those three criteria are that it enhances performance, that it is dangerous to your health, and that it is contrary to the integrity of the sport. But on that first point, I believe the wording of it is it it has you have to see a pattern of players using it to enhance performance. So they're not preempting the fact that this drug could possibly be used to brand uh, to enhance performance. So should we we should ban it before athletes start using it for that purpose? They monitor and they see what athletes are using. Is that sort of reactive approach just not sufficient? Well, look, in an ideal world, as I say, I would much rather it if they just banned everything. And if you've got a cold or if you've got a, a condition, kind of too bad. You know, I know that might sound harsh and there may be people with chronic problems or there may be people with real health difficulties that are, are being kept under under wraps uh, and, 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 or, or, or at least keeping players on the, the, the court at all by taking them. But to me, that is the black and white way around this. But I just don't think it is realistic. So in terms of the the moral element to it I mean I don't feel entirely I certainly don't feel particularly comfortable with somebody taking it to boost their performance until it becomes illegal then I then I think I can see why some of these other players are saying well hold on you know that that player played against me while they were using what we now regard as a banned substance I think if it's a mistake it's black and white no you know the the person pays for the mistake not for the the mor- moral decision to enhance their own performance if it if it can be proved and i don't know how you would prove it that somebody is taking it because they know it enhances their performance despite it not being on the ban list yeah it's n- it's not something that i feel particularly comfortable with either it is interesting though david isn't it to see the wide range of opinion from fellow players because i think on the moral side of things one of the main um, arguments against doping is that it 
gives you an unfair advantage that your fellow players don't have whereas I think a lot of players are saying well if this was legal then there was nothing unfair about her taking it it didn't give her an advantage that I couldn't have had if I'd wanted to seek that sort of thing out do you think that contributes to perhaps some of the really really vast array of opinion among fellow players on both the WTA and ATP tours yeah and I think that there are probably some players as well who don't take any supplements for for fear of, of potentially crossing an illegal line. Well, that's um, precisely what Serena Williams said. She said she's yeah. terrified of supplements. Well, well, I remember back in the day, Tim Hemman saying, you know, I, I, I feel as though all I can take is water and to be absolutely, completely, 100% confident. And just, just anecdotally, 20 years ago, this non-athlete sitting in front of you right now decided to have a go at weight training, right, to, to, to transform his puny, embarrassing physique into something relatively acceptable in today's society. And I actually took creatine. I actually had a bit of this stuff to, when I was doing my weight training. And there is no question about it that it actually enabled me to train harder and lift more weights. Now, that is apparently allowed I, and I don't get why. I, 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 apparently, it's because it only fulfills one of the three criteria that, that needs to be fulfilled for it to enter the band list. But that's why it's such a grey area for, for me, I think, for everybody. And, you know, as I said, the more you can ban, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I just want to find out who's the best athlete. Bottom line. That's the thing. I mean, for me, where the moral line lies is... I mean, I've made this argument not in relation to doping before. I remember... Back in the days of yonder, David, when I wasn't a Roger Federer fan, I remember ex- trying to explain why that was, and I just couldn't relate to him. He seemed too superhuman, too serene, too he bore no relation to human beings as I know them. And I think that is the core issue for me morally. It's about relatability. In order to be able to fully appreciate these athletes, you need to be able to relate to them. They need to be the best of us physically and if you start to feel that they're not of us somehow that's a change in the landscape for me and that is the beauty of Roger Federer that he was he's been able to do this with those innate gifts that he was born with and he's been able to nurture through natural training methods and and the skill he's developed but you're absolutely right I I, I watched um, the the 100 meters final in Seoul live when Ben Johnson thrashed a field of competitors and it was so exciting at the time and it was so crushing to find out that it was all a sham and this is what we have to try to avoid in sports today by having the right sort of anti-doping program that can catch the real cheats and and stop that from happening it would just be nice if the lines weren't blurred at all and the to me, the more you can ban, the better chance you have of removing those blurred lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think probably the world of everyone with a vested interest in sports spectator, people that work in sport, would probably agree with you. But then there are practical considerations that we just don't know about. I mean, I've tried to do as much Googling as possible about, about just how hard it is to even develop the tests for some of these things I mean it's more easy with a substance like meldonium that's artificial but lots of these things are naturally occurring things in one's body anyway that people are just trying to enhance their levels of I mean I can't begin to imagine the scientific complexities of trying 
to test for that. So there are there are factors at play here that we probably can't appreciate the minutiae of as much as we've tried uh, in the past week. But look, this is going to rumble for a long time. We haven't even had the preliminary hearing yet, and we will learn a lot more after that. So, of course, there will be more discussion on this in podcasts to come. Tennis has actually been happening, though, amazingly. Actual striking of tennis balls uh, over in Indian Wells, which just looks disgustingly nice, Indian Wells, doesn't it? I mean, as lovely as it is in the Putney Exchange, it's no tennis garden, is it? It's not, no. I've had the uh, the pleasure of uh, reporting from Indian Wells on, on two occasions, and my word, was it good. Um, beautiful temperatures, lovely air, and just fantastic tournament as well. I mean, what a tournament they put on there. And it's, you know, it was 2007 and 08 when I went there. And, and even since then, it is, it's, it's one of those that every single year you expect to be better than the year before. And, and I think it really is one of the players' favourites, understandably. There are some players who haven't enjoyed it particularly this year, though. Uh, Angelique Kerber, she lost in straight sets to Denise Alatova. Expected, do you think, a little bit of a lull after Australia? Because, I mean, she, prior to becoming a Grand Slam champion, she was best known for her consistency. So this is a little bit out of the blue, isn't it? No, this wasn't expected for me. I, I Yeah, she might have had a hangover. You, you, you might expect that. But to, to not win a match, more or less, since... Australian Open and, and Denise Ralatova is a good player. She also lost to uh, Belinda Bencic, who's a good player. She's lost the, the week after that. I watched in the Middle East, she, she lost as well. But this is unusually uh, a, a fall from, from a strong position of winning the Grand Slam to, to not being able to win a match. Now, I don't know why that is. I haven't heard too much from her, but you know, it does come with a different pressure, certainly. I remember Yevgeny Kafelnikov getting to number one in the world and losing his next six matches straight after becoming world number one. I remember being at the tournaments that he was at, and, and it's, it's horrible, really, in terms of when you want to kind of celebrate a massive achievement and then you see somebody struggling so abjectly. But, you know, it's, well, it's only three matches, isn't it? Yeah, it is only three matches. Uh, a very, very, I think, a very tough loss to take last night for Grigor Dimitrov to Alex Verev. Um, I mean, the the narrative is almost too cutely poetic to say, but, you know, he was once that next generation and here he is losing in a very disappointing way, I think, because he was a break-up in that third set to the now current next generation of Alex Verev. I mean, that is, that's got to be a tough pill to swallow for him, hasn't it? Well, a disappointing way, and frankly, an all-too-familiar way just at the moment over the last year or so for Grigor. He, he needs to find a way to reboot, go back to the basics that got him to a semi-final of, of Wimbledon, to, to, to winning at Queen's, to doing all the things that, well, frankly, got this tennis podcast so excited over the years because he's still a joy to watch. Let's no, let's make no bones about it. And I, and I saw that match, the last two sets last night. He was in a strong co- p- position and he let it slip. Now, part of that is due to the, the, the brilliant young fella on the other side who is going to be a star, it would appear. But then we said that about Dimitrov. It doesn't automatically follow that these players go from enormous promise to realising that potential, um, I still I still refuse to give up hope about Dimitrov because athletically and talent-wise, it's still there. He, he, if if somebody could remove the psychological scar tissue that has built up over the last year and a half, 
and that is a big psychological scar tissue. I, I see no reason why he, he can't compete at the, the, the top 10 level again, but it seems a long way off just at the moment. It's hard not to feel for him, isn't it? I mean, I was discussing it on the phone with my dad last night, and we both concluded that what a joy it was not to be so overburdened with tennis talent in the way that he is. How lucky we are. Uh, some people have had a slightly better week in Inuel. I mean, Venus Williams, her return to Inuel's after 15 years, she lost to Karimi Nara, the qualifier, but the quotes from her about how joyous it was for her to return, she said she couldn't stop smiling throughout the warm-up. It was all very emotional for her. She was overwhelmed by the reception she received. I mean, did we ever think we'd see the day? I certainly didn't. No, uh, and I didn't see, think I'd see the day that Serena would come back last year either. Um, it's a shame, really, that it's inevitably been overshadowed in terms of media spotlight by the, the sheer magnitude of the news story that we've been reporting the last seven days. But you're right, it, it's, I, I'd hope that that is closure now for the Williams sisters on that very unfortunate, unpleasant episode from... 15 years ago um, but I, I, for me I, I, I still think it's marvellous and remarkable that Venus Williams steps foot on any tennis court at the moment because of what she's been through but given what went on at Indian Wells that, that's really uplifting yep, Couldn't agree more uh, Novak Djokovic has lost a set again don't call it a crisis, David. What's going on? <laughs> well, and, and meanwhile, Rafael Nadal's actually won a deciding set. So maybe the world is turning on its axis just at the moment. But look, I mean, Novak Djokovic is going through uh, a spell of mortality just at the moment, I would say, because he had the problem with, with his eyes that caused him to to retire from his match um, a few weeks ago and then he, he he was down two sets to one at the Davis Cup he's lost a set here we, we can't expect the guy to just keep on winning as easily as he has been but actually you know it would make things more interesting if he came back to the field a little bit more but my suspicion is that this is probably just a little blip just a little blip uh now, some uh, food for the soul this week, comeback-wise. Juan Martín del Potro, how wonderful to see him playing another top-level tennis player again and being able to compete with him. He did eventually lose in straight sets to Thomas Burdick, but particularly that first set, how wonderful a sight was that. I know we saw him in Delray Beach where he played really, really well, reaching the semi-finals there and got that win over Jeremy Shardy, but this felt different, didn't it? Seeing, seeing him where he belongs, playing the likes of Thomas Burdick, it, it felt good, didn't it? King Kong tennis is what uh, Juan Martín Del Potro invented uh, during the height of his career before the wrist injury started. I, I still would qualify that, though, with the, the caveat that he, he doesn't have the same backhand that he used to have. Not at the moment, anyway. Maybe it's uh, a process of, of getting confidence in that wrist again before he can properly crack it again. At the moment, he seems to be pushing it. He can unload on the forehand. But let's be honest, it's only two or three tournaments into that comeback. But, you know, a little bit like the Venus Williams situation, just thank goodness the guy's back on a tennis court, same as Laura Robson. There's a reason why so many players talk about a wrist injury being the most hard to come back for. And you mentioned Laura Robson there. She lost first round as well to Rebarakova, but she the comments from her after the match were... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Very, very encouraging, weren't they? She says for the first time in a long time she feels completely comfortable going for the ball, striking it as hard as she possibly can, which is her game. She needs to be able to do that in order to have any chance at a comeback, and she intends to play a full schedule now on tour this year. You know, I think we underestimate perhaps in in our real lives where we don't get to play tennis for a living, but there are things that we take for granted as things we like to do in life. And this is what these people want to do in life they want to play tennis most of them anyway you know that that is I mean I think Laura Robson's got other things in her life I'm sure Martin Del Potro has as well but it must be crushing not to be able to do what you want to do with your life when you know you're capable otherwise when everything else is set up perfectly you're young you're healthy you're physically fit and then one little tiny part of your body is just stopping you and stopping you for a couple of years. It must be horrible. And I think we said it at the start of the year that that, that, that was our hope for 2016, to see those two able to play at the top level again. It's still a heck of a long way away, though. Laura Robson has got a lot to come through. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. It must be good for her to see one Martin Del Potro playing the sort of tennis that he hopefully is playing. They shared a surgeon, of course. When Del Potro heard of Laura Robson's wrist injury, he got on the phone to her and recommended his own surgeon. That surgeon is probably eagerly tuning in to all of these matches. You know, his online reviews depend on these results. Yeah, they do, don't they? But uh, no, great to have them back. And uh, well, long may that resurgence continue.
Absolutely. Whole week of tennis left in Indian Wells. We'll be reviewing it on the podcast next week. But for now, it is our interview with the newly re-elected ATP chairman, Chris Camo. David has been catching up with him over at the Queen's Club. Well, it's a beautiful spring day in London. I'm sitting inside the uh, office of the ATP's executive Chairman and President Chris Commode, who's just been elected for a further three years. Congratulations, Chris. Thanks, David. And uh, this is the, the place where you used to oversee the Aegon Championships. It must be uh, quite a nice place to have an office. Yeah, it's great. I mean, uh, looking out of this window here at the, uh, the grass courts at Queen's Club, I will, will always have a huge fondness uh, for this event. Um, you know, it sort of started my... Uh, almost my career in tennis administration so um, no it's great it's a great fondness for it. Now Chris Commode is a retired English tennis player is what Wikipedia tells me I, I, I mean I, I vaguely heard something about this many years ago that you used to play the game what's the actual truth? Uh, well the actual truth Wikipedia yeah it's an interesting one that one because Wikipedia says um, that I was a uh, a, a former tennis player. I was a former tennis player of sorts, but a very bad one. Um, so I used to uh, hack around playing uh, uh, what were then satellite events, now challengers. So uh, I have a huge affinity for uh, uh, qualifiers and for uh, challenger players. Also, it says in Wikipedia that I'm uh, Mark uh, Kermode's brother, which I'm not. Yes, he's a film reviewer for BBC Radio 5 Live. I can categorically state that that is definitely not the case um now chris obviously the last uh, the last couple of months have been particularly notable in terms of uh, of issues that have arisen and uh, we'll get onto those in the moments particularly the ones uh, the australian open with the suspicious betting patterns and the reports that followed and obviously over the last week or so we've had the the drug testing um, failed by maria sharapova which has come into the public domain as well However, generally speaking, over the last two years, how has the job compared to what you might have expected it would be? Well, it's been an incredibly uh, challenging and interesting um, journey so far, um, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. And, you know, when I came in in, uh, almost two years ago, one of the first things I wanted to do was, you know, I'd noticed in the past that, you know, the two big emotional issues with, um, with with the ATP as a structure which is owned by... 50% 50% owned by players and 50% owned by promoters. The two huge uh, areas of conflict are the calendar and, and obviously prize money. And so rather than have these annual discussions, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was to uh, set, set it out through to 2018. So, um, you know, the calendar is set, all the prize money levels are set in Masters 1000s, 500s and 250s. So players know what they're going to get paid promoters know what they are going to pay Um, and then it gives us time a sort of period of calm and stability that we can actually look at the interesting stuff which is you know what can we do as a sports entertainment product to make our you know the business of of tennis better and I imagine at times it is a little bit of a tricky balance isn't it because inevitably if players want one thing the tournaments may well want another and and that's the you know that's the challenge um and it's it's a, uh, you know i've always uh you know openly said i believe in the atp structure so much because i think it's one of the if not the only sport that is co-owned by promoters and and players 
um, but it means that both have a voice at the table, uh, you know, consistently throughout the years. There is dialogue, um, and whilst it can be tricky at times, uh, I'd much prefer both sides to be working together rather than, you know, sometimes, in, especially in the States, you have collective bargaining and there's strike action and, uh, or threats of strike action and collective bargaining. Um, you know, I, I think this process, whilst difficult, um, really is, is best in the long run. Now, typically you would oversee the men's tour as a whole. You go to a lot of tournaments. You're in, involved in all the decision-making on the men's side. Normally, when you get to a Grand Slam tournament, there, I know there's a, often a main players meeting at the outset you've got many other meetings that you have to to go into as well the Australian Open this year however was completely dominated certainly in the early parts by the reports into suspicious betting patterns and and alleged match fixing by BuzzFeed and the BBC you would have arrived there and I know you knew about it pretty early on How, how did you come to hear about it and what was your immediate response well, we were notified, I think, about three or four days before actually it came out. And, you know, it's something that, you know, all sport is under the spotlight now. I think um, especially governing bodies over the past, uh, you know, couple of years, we've had, you know, governing bodies in other sports, um, you know, with very, very serious allegations. And, you know, we're just the next in line. And I think, um, you know, we took a very, very quick decision, I mean, almost within a couple of days of the allegations of uh, setting up an independent review board, uh, a three-person panel led by Adam Lewis, a QC. And, you know, their job, their remit is to look at everything, um, you know, about transparency, match fixing, um, you know, the structure of tennis and the two things that we've done, which, you know, I was really, really insistent on, one is we're going to publish them, publish that report, and two, we've committed to act on every single recommendation. And that's the key on this. You know, the, uh, as I said or alluded to, you know, the, the other governing bodies in other sports and, you know, the, there's a sort of almost a flavour of the month to, to have a good look at sports is what the world doesn't want to see is another sports administrator standing up defending um, his or her sport, which you know I will continue to do so, but in terms of the public perception, um, you know to truly believe what I say is real is you don't have to listen to us. Um, that's the purpose of this review: is um, have someone independent, and you know they will tell us and they will tell the world the findings. Could be quite expensive. Yeah, I think it will be very expensive, but we're committed to do that because that's the seriousness that we take, uh, you know, these allegations. Um, You know, match fixing, I think um, it's, you know, very important to point out that last year there were 120,000 tennis matches played uh, at, you know, ITF Futures level, ATP Challenger level, at the 250s, the 500s and the Masters 1000s. And... There were just on the betting alerts that you mentioned earlier, and betting alerts do not mean that there is match fixing. They are just merely an unusual betting pattern that can be influenced by a whole range of factors. But even just on those betting alerts, it was 0.2% in all the matches played. So 99.8% of matches didn't even have a betting alert. Um, and I think that's, you know, is one match too much? Yeah, of course it is. You know, if there was one incident of match fixing, it's too many. 
But I think this independent review has demonstrating, or by setting up the independent review, has demonstrated, hopefully, that one, we will be very, very transparent. We, we will acknowledge that we have a zero tolerance uh, of this in, in the game, um, and we will do everything we can to eradicate it from our sport. You mentioned, basically, you feel that maybe tennis is next in line, hence one of the reasons this might have come to light and been looked into do you therefore feel that tennis i mean you mentioned some of the figures there tennis doesn't really have much of a case to answer here that it's not a big problem in in the sport uh i think uh, again that question is that you know there's no need for me to answer because i think the independent review uh panel's findings will reveal that what it has shown is that we need to act uh with integrity ourselves with openness and transparency to show that we are, um, you know, and demonstrate we are tackling this in the best way that we can. And I believe we do have a very robust process in place. Can we be better? Everybody can be better. So, yes, I think in a way this is not a bad thing to happen to our sport. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. um, It's uh, annoying to have to deal with. But actually, um, you know, a lot of good will come out of it in terms of that we can it's always good for you know any sport that thinks or any business that thinks they are totally on top of everything um you know i think shows an arrogance and i think you know this is the time for us to review everything that we're doing what sort of time scale are we looking at for that independent review to reach its findings and yourselves to act upon them again we did we didn't want to be seen as giving a for us tennis to be determining what that deadline is what um, you know, we wanted to give uh, Adam Lewis and his team, uh, you know, basically, you know, open-ended time frame to do this. He's indicated that it will probably be about a year. Um, it's very, very in-depth. Um, and, you know, it's it's open for anybody who's got, you know, suppose any allegations, any evidence, you know, to hand it over to, to them is, is is a good thing. One of the talking points that came out of the situation, obviously it was followed up with players, and one or two I heard speak about the fact that they're not allowed to bet on tennis, and yet certain tennis tournaments, the Australian Open included, have betting partners as commercial <clears throat> partners. What do, what do, where do you stand on that now? Well, there are two, two, two parts of that question. Uh, there's the part about uh, is there, should there be a difference between um, events and promoters being able to have betting partners as, as opposed to players. Uh, and then there's the question about whether either should be. So the first one is I think it's you know, key to point out that betting is a legal pastime enjoyed by many people around the world. You know, We have a horse racing event over here, the Grand National, where you know, people put on – People who don't normally watch horse horse racing will put on a two, three, four, five pound bet, um, and you know actually it makes the race very enjoyable. So I think to make the jump that suddenly having uh, a betting partner therefore equates to there's match fixing is is a, a bit of a leap. Um, it is a perception issue, and that's why since 1990 the ATP has had a view never to have a betting partner. Um, and but individual tournaments, you know, are allowed to. They are individual businesses, and it's their own, uh, you know, choice to do that. 
I think um, you know players have said, well, if they can, you know if, if events can have uh, betting partners, why can't we? I think the decision was taken then that um, people are used, the public are used to seeing, and it's commonplace to see uh, betting companies advertising uh, and marketing themselves at, at events. I think they believed that an individual sport, just the perception-wise, it was a, it was a, a sort of a step too far. Um, and that's continued to be the the view, but I, I think again in the independent review, you know that question might well be answered. Now that's one topic that has dominated the, the discussion over the last couple of months. Another one, as I mentioned earlier, has come up in the last week. It's a, it's a week since Maria Sharapova revealed that she had uh, tested positive for a substance, meldonium, and and uh, has failed a drugs test accordingly. Now, obviously, that's beyond your jurisdiction but just generally in terms of the way that the system works explain to us how does it work on on an ATP side of of things it's not directly under your jurisdiction no so it's uh, before I'm um, going back over 10 years the ATP used to run its own anti-doping program uh, and we were uh, you know uh, accused or had um, you know People making comments that we're judging, we're policing our own players. So, um, you know, about ten years ago, there was a uh, decision made and a right decision to be independent from that, to give it over to uh, the responsibility over to the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, who run the program under the WADA code, the World Anti-Doping Organization. Um, and so, you know, players are tested. There's lots of, uh, you know, in-competition testing, out of increased amount of out-of-competition testing. We introduced the biologic, athlete's biological passport, which is hugely helpful, gathering data and shows, you know, big um, sort of, uh, you know, if there's big fluctuations um, in any readings, um, and that's probably been the biggest uh, leap in this program. Um but basically how it works is, you know, an athlete is, is uh, you know, gets tested, um, a sample is collected, uh, and, you know, and then it's labelled with um, a, a number and not the player's names. So, the, um, so again, there's a sort of, uh, we can't be accused of covering up the number one player in the world, you know, uh, you know as important as, you know, the, for the integrity of the game. It's in our interest to expose every single player um, you know that is caught doing this because there is a zero zero tolerance on this um, that's a uh, sample if it's positive is then uh, sent to the independent review board there are three members there's a lawyer always a doctor and a scientist to determine if there is a case to answer uh, and then it's taken from there um, they then notify the ITF who notifies the player um, and then there obviously is is the determination we don't determine how long a player you know is banned for um again for the view of keeping it independent um and so yeah it's a very rigorous process and it's something that you know all sport has got to be on top of to that end do you think there's enough testing currently well again there's many people you know have got a view about how much testing needs to be done um i think you'd have to ask the experts in that field uh, and people have different different views lance armstrong was i think the most tested athlete on the planet um and so it is it is part part of the process it's a major part of the process but it's about you know again it's 
being unpredictable in when players are going to be tested. Um, so out of competition, testing is hugely relevant. Um, and adding things like this biological passport is key. One or two of the uh, the comments that I've heard over the last week is whether players are, are told enough or given enough information that is clearly understood enough in order for them to be on top of if there is a rule change as there has been in the terms in in terms of this uh, substance meldonium which was for a number of years certainly not on the ban list and it became on the ban list on January the 1st what what happens at ATP tournaments in, in terms of your own players in terms of informing them so we we have a process um that you know f- our communication from the ATP is is constant with players, um, so they are notified at any change at any time uh, of any you know change in substance going from a from a uh, you know from the non banned list to a banned list. Um, they, players are also sent um, communication from the ITF. They are also sent play, um, information from WADA themselves. So between the three of us, you know, we do notify players a lot. Um, we've got to keep doing that. We've got to keep on top of that because we don't want anything to fall through the cracks. Um, and But ultimately, it is up to the player to be aware uh, of, of what they're taking. And to that end, I suppose there's also generally an education piece there as well, isn't there? Both in terms of the potential for, for corruption and match fixing and the dangers of it and why they shouldn't do it, and also about the importance of, of being a clean athlete and the processes needed to be going through. Because, I mean, the, the thing with this is, you know, a cold remedy. We've seen that in the past, haven't we? That that it may have something in it. And and I've seen players walk around stuffed up with a cold saying, I can't I can't have anything. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it's quite simple. There are, there are things on the list that you cannot take. Um, I was reading an article uh, last week about Mo Farah and, you know, Take it, having some coffees before he goes out to race, you know, that that's legal. So, you know, but that is a stimulant, but that's okay. So you are aware every athlete knows what they can and cannot take. And so, you know, if it is a cold or flu remedy and there is ingredients in there that um, are on the banned list, well, you can't take it. Pretty simple. And when you put it in those terms, I mentioned the education. The, there is an ATP university. Um, is that something that you will look to perhaps beef up a little bit in light of, of what's, what's come out over the last couple of months? Well, funny enough, we were going to do that. Uh, we started that process a year ago, even uh, pre these allegations. Um, the ATP University is is something that's been uh, there for many years. It's a four-day course where players learn um, all about anti-doping, anti-corruption, um, you know, their responsibilities of being a professional athlete. Um, you know, it's that transition from uh, having spent, you know, their younger years, um, you know, hitting a tennis ball, playing around the world in many places where no one's watching, to suddenly getting onto a uh, onto a stage in front of a global spotlight. So, and uh, you know, with that becomes you know a big responsibility. So these are what we call Division Two members, which is where you have to be in the sort of top five hundred, and um, they have to attend this course. Um, what we want to do, and what we started to look at uh, a year ago, was how do we get to uh, the younger 
kids you know who are playing challengers tours to start educating them at you know 15 16 17 so we're starting that process now it's a um what we do with the university i really believe in it but i think it's got to be more uh, constant and ongoing um so that there is almost maybe a module based to this we're at the uh, initial sort of discussions of how we do this but um from an organization we want to really really expand this role you mentioned that next generation, and uh, I know there are there's, there's a lot of promotion of this group of a dozen or so young players who who there's a, a lot of excitement about, and I've also remember you 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 were telling us about an under twenty one tournament that you that you planned to run. Uh, what is the status of that? Where is it going to be? When is it going to be? So yeah, this is a hugely exciting project uh, that I've been w- working on for uh, sort of eighteen months now, and it and it came about from uh, when I grew up as a kid, uh, a player would win a, a Grand Slam Juniors under eighteen, and the following year, age nineteen, be making serious inroads into uh, you know World Tour events. And now, just because of the sort of the nature of the game, it's so much more physical, so much more dynamic, that players are making that transition from juniors to seniors more, making the breakthrough normally around 23 years old. So the, the 21 is the new, the new under 18. So that's one reason. The second reason is we have all been guilty in tennis of just promoting um, the top four, the big four, over the last decade. And the depth... And talent in the men's professional game is is so great, and we need to tell the story of many more players. And so for this next generation, sport is about caring who wins over someone else. It's that simple. And unlike a team sport like football, where you have the almost a tribal following, where you support a team that your father or you know grandfather supported. You can go and watch a match sometimes where the product on the pitch isn't that great, but you get brought into that whole sense of occasion and it's still uh, a great day out. With an individual sport, you are much more focused on the actual product, whether it's a, a good match. And so you also need to find hooks where people have an emotional buy-in. That's, that's what it is. It's about caring. So if you're seeing two players that you don't know anything about it's very difficult to care who wins, but if you are aware of their backstory and where they've come from and, you know, the many different characters, you will find someone that you really are rooting for. So this next generation, we will be able to put them on a platform, piece of theatre to really um, to highlight uh, how great and interesting and dynamic these next generations are. And then the third point of it is people talk about you know where the game is going in the next 10 20 years uh, every you know people are very passionate about views of where the game should be and um you know changing rules looking at ways of enhancing the you know getting rid of the downtime increasing the sort of the the, the fever pitch moments and this will be uh, an event it will be the season ending 21 and unders played in the same format as the Barclays ATP World Tour finals but we will test case any sort of innovation um, that we would consider doing. Stuff like removing the knock-up, for instance. Yeah, I mean, you know, removing the warm-up is, is one of my, my ones, but there are many others. Um, Why is it one of your ones? 
Well, I just, you know, when I, you know, certainly watch it on the television, um, when you go to a live event, it's okay, because again, you're caught up in the in the moment and the atmosphere within the arena. But when you're watching it on television, and you see the big, you know, uh, you know, the, the big theatrics of a you know player walking onto the court, and there's a big moment, and then it drops dead for a period where, you know, they're getting rackets out, they're, you know, doing their shoelaces up then there's a five minute warm-up then they go back to the bench and you know it can be you know eight to 15 minutes at at times and it's too too long um and I think you know it doesn't need to be that long so I want to want to look at that but there are many others that people throw in and the good thing about this is that shot clock in terms of uh, the time between points yeah, there's 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 shot clocks. There's um, there's you know no lets. There's no ads scoring. There's you know should the tie break be at five or not six or there's a whole there's there are so many. But the you know what is great about this and exciting about this is um, I want to ask. There are sort of five key stakeholders in in tennis, and often sport gets very um, uh, almost arrogant in, in, in its approach of predicting what people want. What I want to do is actually ask people where they would like the game to be. And that's players, that's, um, you know, that's uh, promoters, that's fans, that's media and sponsors and go, what do you think? And let's, you know, let's have some fun with this and, and, and see what works. So there'll be some ideas that you think are uh, going to be horrendous. And actually, when you do it, you know, may work and other ideas that you think are going to be really, really good and you find they don't add very much at all, but let's see. So the two final questions there then are, where is this under-21 tournament going to be and when? And once you've trialled them out, how do you actually, what process has to be gone through for them to, to be proposed and, and brought into the reality of professional tennis? Well, the second question is the, the, the more difficult one. The first one's uh, quite easy. We have five cities that are um, uh, looking to host this event. There's been huge amounts of interest, which is great. Um, and by the end of April, we will whittle that down, that five down to sort of two or three. And then hopefully April will make that decision of where it's going to be. We want it to be in, in a place where, um, you know, tennis is welcomed and has a big following. Um, and in a media, you know, friendly time zone to get the maximum exposure. In terms of implementing any change, that you know, that is the challenge because you know we're we're not solely responsible for it. Obviously, you you have uh, the women's tour, you have the the Grand Slams, and so you know we don't want to make changes for changes' sake. That's the key. We just want to see are there ways that we can enhance the game, you know, and make it even better. I do believe tennis is one of the the best sports entertainment products in the world at the moment. But you can't be complacent and think that it's going to be, you know, stay as relevant as it is now uh, going forward without having a good internal look. But 2017 is when the under-21 tournament will take place. You've got another three years of this. Do you think we might see any changes before you finish that term? Well, let's see. I mean, it's an exciting time um, for tennis because I think, um, as I said, the relationship between the promoters and players is probably the best it's ever been. I think, uh, you know, certainly the the stats show that tennis has been the best place it's ever been. We had over a billion people watching ATP tennis events last year, you know, and um, on-site attendance at 4.5 million is a record uh, amount of people who are coming out to watch the product. so, and commercially, we're in the best place we've ever been. Um, 
there's been a 245% increase in, in commercial revenues since 2009. Um, so all the indicators are good, but you just cannot stand still. You know, it's a very, um, you know, we live in a very fast-moving world where, you know, even how people consume, uh, you know, the product, how they consume media has changed so dramatically even in the last five years. My Children, unfortunately, have never paid for anything in their life. They seem to watch movies and sport and, uh, and you know, download music for free, um, which is a constant annoyance to me. But that's just the way the world has worked. So how do we engage with, we talk about the next generation of, of players, but we need to be really, really aware of the next generation of fans as well. That's the future, and you're going to be part of it. We know that for the next three years. Congratulations on the re-election, Chris, and, and thanks for joining us here on the Tennis Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 